The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Welcome to our weekly meeting, the satsang. Tonight in this satsang I'm going to present some of the truths, some of the spiritual truths as they were presented by the Buddha himself, by Gautama Buddha, and uh, to give an explanation of those in the understanding of yoga. Exactly as in many satsangs we did, we build bridges between different spiritualities, such as we had commentary on the Yoga Sutra, or a commentary on two of the four Gospels in the Bible, in the New Testament, showing how the statements of Krishna, how the statements of Jesus, how the statements of Patanjali, how can they be understood and interpreted from the standpoint of yoga, and especially a very technical yoga, a very accurate yoga, like the one that we teach here in uh, Agama. And uh, I have been asked to give, to create a few such bridges with the very teachings of the Buddha, not least of all, given the fact that we are in a country which is predominantly Buddhist, not least of all, given the fact that many people who come to Thailand, uh, they have been or will be or are intermittently connected with Vipassana retreats, Buddhist practices, and generally Buddhist spirituality. And that is why, taking all those into account, um, I want to have a few lectures of seeing where the common lines of spirituality are between the basic statements of Buddha and the way we understand spirituality in Agama Yoga. Later in this season, I have also received the request to make an analysis of the basic Hatha Yogic, Kundalini Yogic texts from India, the backbone of the tradition, which we mention so often in our lectures, even in the first level intensive, such as the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Geranda, Samhita, and so on. And uh, that is a very big project. And um, if time will permit and everything goes the right way, then later in the season, <coughs> I will also make an analysis of yogic texts. Until that time, again, we're going to spend a little bit, not much. I'm not going to go into the details of the, because there are many branches of uh, Buddhist theology, spirituality. But I would like to discuss a little bit about some of the basics. And uh, I would like to start with a quote which I extracted here which is from the very Swami Vivekananda of India, the great Swami Vivekananda, about 120 years ago, wrote about the Buddha. Well, he was one of his favorites, one of his all-time favorites. And Swami Vivekananda praised Buddha with the following words. He said, let me tell you a few words about one man who actually carried this teaching of Karma Yoga into practice. Basically, I would like to say that Vivekananda says this at, at the time when Vivekananda wrote this, 
they had not been living a few other great karma yogis. For example, Mahatma Gandhi, who had been an eminent karma yogi more than other branches of yoga. At that time, Swami Shivananda had not come to live to India and to unfold his activity because Swami Shivananda did a tremendous amount of karma yoga and in a very yogic way. At that time, characters like the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, or characters like Mother Teresa had not been alive. And thus, I'm sure that if Swami Vivekananda of India would uh, again analyze the world of karma yoga, he would not fail to mention some of those, which in the last hundred years, they have been brilliant examples of karma yoga. But at the time when Swami Vivekananda wrote this, that means about the year 1900, by the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th, um, yoga had been gone into decadence in India for eight centuries, and only the guru of Vivekananda had come forth very strong, Ramakrishna, and he was the regenerator of yoga. He was nicknamed by the great novelist Romain Roland, who wrote his biography. He was nicknamed, Ramakrishna had been nicknamed the Prince of the Yogis, because being so significant, so great in the resurrection of yoga. Without Ramakrishna in the 19th century, yoga would have been today almost lost. And um, so Vivekananda, when he was looking back at the last eight centuries of yoga in India, he saw a lot of underground yoga because yoga had been persecuted by the Islamic rulers of India and not very encouraged by the British, by the Catholic Church of the Portuguese or any others. So yoga had been pretty much underground, and those underground yogis were not very much into public action, into social action. They were more like yogis living in the jungle, living in a hut, living in a cave, solitary yogis, hermetic yogis, and doing their practice yogis who are focusing on contemplation, meditation, individual practice. That's why when he was looking back, he had a long space in history where he couldn't see any of the big karma yogis of India, and one of them for him was Buddha. Let's not forget, you should not forget, and it's something which those of you who are absolute beginners in yoga and never heard that uh, will be probably shocked to hear, or surprised here because definitely you have a lot of fantasies and fancy and imagination about what spiritual life is like and where does it go and how it manifests. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that in India, in Tibet, in many places, life expectation was very short. Many people said, you know, if you are having to reach something, you have to reach it when you are young. If you will see again the beautiful but very tough British movie, The Lion in the Winter, about the early British kings at the time of, before Richard of Lionheart, there the king 
says at some point, I'm 45 years old. All the people from my generation are dead. I'm older than the Pope himself in Rome. I've lived my life and done my things. Like people at the age of 45, if they had not reached enlightenment by the age of 30 or 35, they considered like they missed the train. They missed this train and they should try again in the next life. So that's why there was this sense of urgency, which was not bad, that people were kicked in the ass and told, go, 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 go now, because life is short. And then when you'll be 45, the old age symptoms will be much stronger than they are today. And then you are going to say, didn't people live sometimes 80 years or 100 years? Sometimes, but those were considered miracles. And they, because those people covered many, many generations of the regular population. And sometimes we had these urban legends that some people were believed to have lived 200 years, 300 years. But actually they had just lived 85 or 100. And of course nobody had records, so they didn't know really. But because that person was older than your grand-grandparents, three, four, five generations had died, and that man or that woman was like coming from history. So to make again the long story short, people were living little, and that's why it was considered like do whatever you do to reach enlightenment. And nobody really asked the question, what will you do after you reach enlightenment? Because Buddha himself reached enlightenment by the age of 34, 35, 36. History is not very clear around that age. And it's like if you reach enlightenment like Buddha, when you are 36 or 37 or 35, then you've got another 10 years to live, averagely. And you might not consider very important even those years to live. Or actually you are going to consecrate those 10 years that you averagely have left to create a disciple. Like hopefully in 10 years you can take a disciple and educate him or her so hard that there is at least one other enlightened being that can follow you and to whom you can leave your books, your knowledge, your method, your ashram, your whatever it is and tell them, you know, continue my work. That's why uh, people having these conditionings, they were not contemplating too much that an enlightened being does something. They were not really caring too much about this. And for Swami Vivekananda of India, it was amazing that Buddha reached enlightenment at the age of 35 or whatever it is, and he lived averagely until the age of 80. It is approximated by the biographers of Buddha that he died at a ripe old age, which simply says that Buddha lived as an enlightened being on earth for 40 plus years, like more than the other part of his life. That means he has been in a physical body, enlightened for a long, long time. Many yogis didn't do that. Adi Shankaracharya, who lived in the 7th, 8th century, the reformer of Hinduism, the one who created most of the Swami orders of India, Adi Shankaracharya reached Samadhi at the age of 16 and he died at the age of 32. He died younger than Jesus. Jesus died at the age of 33 and something. 
You can very well argue, yeah, but he was crucified by the bad guys, but still he died young. Others and others haven't gone long. Swami Vivekananda himself, who writes these words, he died at the age of 39. His guru, Ramakrishna, died at the age of 50. Others and others died pretty young. Like when you look at the world of the big yogis, you don't find that many of them lived very, very long lives. Although yoga is a promoter of longevity, most of these big yogis were like, I came here with a mission, I'm going to do my dharma, I'm going to close my nostrils and go into nirvana and out of this body. Like most of them did not consider, and it's a common thing in spirituality, that staying in the body once you have reached enlightenment is any great gift. Like what, you are getting up tomorrow morning and the same shit happens again? It's like, why would you do that? You know, it's like, okay, and then you are going to get up the day after tomorrow in the morning. And remember, the yogis, especially the old-fashioned yogis, who are most of them not tantric yogis. Tantric yoga is a very rare gift in the history of humanity. Most of those yogis were living a very repressed, suppressed Let's use a more mild word, a more elegant word. They used a very ascetic lifestyle. Like they are eating five grains of rice every day. Now, today, when I'm telling to people, do some Oshava diet, they look at me like I've insulted them. <laughs> but even in medieval Japan, in the 16th century Japan, rice was considered a luxury and a delicious food. Like the peasants couldn't afford to eat rice and they were eating millet, which is a much more dry and not very savory type of cereal. Like when you had rice, you are blessed. Today, people don't even want to eat rice for 10 days. It's like a punishment to do a Shava diet. But the yogis, I've been in ashrams in India where the daily food was kichari, rice and dal, every day for about 360 days per year. And about five days, it was festival, the festival of the temple. And then they got some butter cookies and something. And it was like orgy. It was like, but for the rest, rice and lentils every day. That was the food. So if you are like Shankaracharya like this, and tomorrow morning you have to wake up and have five grains of rice with five grains of lentils. And then you are going around and you are not sticking your penis into anything, you are not going to watch movies in a cinema, you are not, you're not doing anything, uh, you know, the only fun which you could have is the fun that you can close your eyes and your brain starts producing endorphins or whatever it produces because you go into ecstatic states of mind. You don't need to be around for that, you could as well be dead. Like you can leave your body and stop going for those five grains of rice every day, and you go in nirvana, and in a transcorporeal state, you go out of the body, basically, you leave your body, and then you can spend in nirvana hours and hours and days and days and months and months and years and years and centuries and centuries. So that's why in the history of spirituality, there's a constant trend that people who hit this ultimate goal they were not very interested to extend their lifespan because if it's about ecstasy, 
you can have more ecstasy when you leave your body. Your body is actually like a lodestone and it makes ecstasy more difficult. And besides ecstasy, besides religious ecstasy, which is very cool, very good, very special, which is, but besides that, which you could have outside of your body as well, most of these people didn't have any other form of ecstasy or fun in their daily lives. So they were really not motivated at all to stay in the physical body and just fool around here. Today it's almost inconceivable because today we are deep in Kali Yuga. Most of the spirits that are incarnated in this century, in this world, are spirits with very great attachment to the world, very little detachment, and with very big desires, dominated by desire and ignorance. And because of this, we live in a world in which everybody clings with their teeth and nails to life. Like I want to live even if they take out my hip bone, even if they take out one of my kidneys and half of my liver and one of my lungs and I have to shit in a plastic bag because I have cholesterol and so on, I actually would like to live. Not Patanjali. Patanjali would say that life is crap, that life is a curse that you have to wake up every day and keep shitting in your plastic bag, you are sticking to it because you are afraid that when you will die, you will disappear. You are afraid of death, and because of this, you consider death a dark danger and punishment, and you cling to life like a frightened animal, while if you would die, you would get a fresh body in a hundred years or so, and then you could have a new life where you at least wouldn't have to shit in a plastic bag. No, like, why not start fresh? Why not die as soon as it gets shitty and go in another life and start living a nice life? Because we are attached to this life because we don't know that there is a next one. We, people say, and what if all this is a lie? And what if all this is just a dream? And what, is, what if this is the only thing which we've got? Then we have to stick to it. This creates the powerful attachment. And... Uh, Many of the great yogis of yore and Buddhas and Arhats and others, spiritualists from all the traditions, they had gone over this attachment. They had seen the other side. They had crossed to the other shore. They had a trip to the other world and they had seen exactly who is there, what is there, what's happening. And because of this, they were not afraid of death. That's why often in spirituality, you find a trend which is frightening for the people who are attached and egocentric. Because it's like spiritual people, you know, that's why there is even this fear instilled by the manipulators that spiritual people are like the Dravidian branch, the guys from Waco, Texas, you know, ready to set themselves on fire. They are like the Jim Jones people from Guyana. They can drink poison and kill themselves because they are, this is what all the religious people are, like the, you know, bombers, the Islamic bombers, you know, they can die for Allah, screaming Allah Akbar, because they don't care, because they go into some better life or something like that. And um, what I'm trying to say here is that in the spiritual world, indeed, although not in this pathological way, there there does exist a sort of healthy detachment towards the things of life. And that's why we see that spiritual teachers, the great spiritualists, 
didn't stay too much on earth. They stayed the minimum time to fulfill what they thought they had to fulfill. And as soon as it was over, they just went out immediately because they considered that out is better than down here. They considered that free from the body is much better than in a body. That's why uh, there is a special chapter in yoga which talks about the human beings who are enlightened and who stay in a body for a while. And these ones are called jivan muktas, enlightened or liberated while alive, because for all the others it was the habit that they reached samadhi and they went. Even Ramakrishna, the guru of Vivekananda, he was about to die when he got enlightened. He he stayed three days in samadhi, the way with full detachment. He said, good job. No, like, not that Ramakrishna heard what his guru said, because Ramakrishna was stoned completely in samadhi. And his guru stood up and he said, farewell, my disciple. I did you. No, like, you have been three days in samadhi. I can whatever, do whatever I want. And Ramakrishna, after three days, he didn't come back. He just wanted to stay more, 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 more. And he actually spent almost six months in samadhi. And if he would have stayed constantly more than 20-something days, his body would have died. His, his spirit would have disconnected from the body. And basically Ramakrishna was about to die. And he was saved by another yogi who lived in the area and who saw what was happening. His own guru didn't care. Like if this boy has gone in samadhi and then he stays another 30 days and then he chooses to go out of his body, I respect his choice. You know, It's like he's free. He can do whatever he wants. So I just am trying to make you understand again and again the simple fact that in the world of spirituality there is no so much attachment to life Although Buddhists and others, they say, oh, life is precious, you have to respect life and you have to value life, that's more a philosophical, metaphysical way of thinking. It doesn't refer to be attached to life, be afraid of death, be afraid to let go or something like this. On the contrary. That's why you very seldom find, at the time of Vivekananda the Great, you very seldom found somebody like Buddha. Because Buddha reached nirvana and then he spent another 40 years or more in that condition. He didn't leave. He simply exhausted his body until the body ran his DNA to the bottom and he simply lived to the full extent of the normal average physical body. And that's why Vivekananda considered him, look what this man did. He got enlightened. He not only had that one disciple or two, he made many, many disciples. He gave himself a huge headache in creating a Sangha, a community, the Buddhist community. He spent probably years and years writing down the rules for the Sangha to make it a viable institution which can last for another 2,500 years. No, which is a pain in the neck, really, because if you are enlightened, you couldn't care less St. Francis of Assisi, after he reached enlightenment, he was forced by the Pope of the time to write rules, to create an order. The Pope said, you are very beautiful, dear Francis, but you are just a hobo. Like, people cannot imitate just a... You are like an artist. You are just one of a kind. 
if you really want to leave something to your brothers and sisters, then you have to create an order and you have to write the rules of your own order. Like you, Francis of Assisi, started this trip by wanting to be absolutely poor because that's what you read in the Bible, that you should live like the birds of the sky and this and that. Then you have to write that down. That's why I don't know what the Jacobins would do and I don't know what the Benedictines would do and I don't know what the Carmelites would do, but the Franciscans take a special vow of poverty to walk in the footsteps of Francis of Assisi and to be poor and not to have anything. That's one of their main practices. And Francis of Assisi, when writing this charter of the Franciscans of the future, he got ill and died. He was so neurotic. He ran in the forest. He started losing contact with God. Then he went in the forest and prayed like a madman and he, he got the stigmata on his um, hands and feet and so on. It was a nightmare for Francis of Assisi to create a religious order because he was like the birds in the sky. He just wanted to sing and be in ecstasy and not do anything orderly and to do something orderly was like a torture. In the, that's why Vivekananda so much admires Buddha. He says, think about Buddha. Buddha had the mind of an enlightened being. Really, the best thing that he could do was to close his eyes and go in nirvana. And then he had to organize a gazillion stupid fools who came after him to make them into a viable religion. Like he took upon himself a huge headache to organize a world religion, no less than that. That's why, that's why Vivekananda has this great praise for him. <clears throat> that he was a real karma yogi, although we don't see that, we are not often told that. But his 45 years of polishing Buddhism, until at the time when he died, Buddhism could be self-sustaining, and Buddhism could survive without Buddha himself, this was his karma yoga, a huge karma yoga. That man is Buddha. He is the one man who ever carried this into perfect practice, the Karma Yoga. All the prophets of the world, except Buddha, had external motives to move them to unselfish action. He is the ideal Karma Yogi, acting without motive, and the history of humanity shows him to have been the greatest man ever born, beyond compare, the greatest combination of heart and brain ever existed, the greatest soul power that has ever been manifested. It is very beautiful that Vivekananda writes this. Of course, you can see that it is his own personal preference because Vivekananda, when he started his own spiritual history, was a rationalist. Vivekananda never became too much involved into mystical things, bhakti, yoga, and this. He always felt a little bit awkward about his guru Ramakrishna being a total bhakti devotee and being a sort of a divine madman. Vivekananda being both a Capricorn astrologically, therefore a very utilitarian, down-to-earth, goal-oriented type of person, and before knowing Ramakrishna, he was actually an agnostic and a materialist. He didn't even believe in God, 
before Ramakrishna touched him and showed him God simply. And then uh, Vivekananda, because of this, for all his life, he was not the very devotional type. Many, many gurus from India would not subscribe to the statement of Vivekananda. Vivekananda was not very much an Anahata type of person. You see in Vivekananda of India, Muladhara, Manipura, Vishuddha, Ajna, some, most of these chakras, he is not very much, even when he became a big yogi, he was not a very Anahata typology. And you can see this in the types of people where Buddhism has prospered. Buddhism disappeared from India almost because the Indians, if they don't have Anahata, they don't feel they have religion. And Buddhism doesn't have too much Anahata in spite of what people believe. All these concepts of compassion, loving kindness, they are on Ajna, Manipura, but not, they are not on Anahata. And funnily enough, most of the Asian people, they loved it. As soon as Buddhism went to Nepal, Tibet, Burma, Thailand, and then, of course, further east, Vietnam, China, Japan, all these types of people who are very Manipura, Ajna types, they immediately endorsed Buddhism. But in, in the country where it was born, it's still not at all a dominant religion. On the contrary, it almost disappeared off the charts for many centuries, almost completely. I was looking at this famous documentary with people doing Vipassana meditation by the Goenka method in Indian prisons. And after they did 10 days of serious Vipassana, in the 11th morning to celebrate the end of the 10-day retreat, guess what they did? They did Kirtan and Bhajan. You'll never go to Bangkok and do a Goenka retreat, and after the retreat nobody will do any Bhajan or Kirtan. If you go to Chiang Mai, to, to I forgot the name of the monastery, I don't know why. To the monastery near Chiang Mai, the one where they do long retreats, or any other. And you do a long retreat, and then suddenly you tell to your teacher there, oh, this morning or last night I was doing meditation, and I felt so much love in my heart that tears could start, uh, started flowing on my cheeks. Your teacher will, will not give a rat's ass on your love and tears, because according to Buddhist meditation, they are just some samskara. They are just a vritti in your mind. And while a Christian monk would say, you, you thought about God and you cried. Oh, that's the gift of tears. It's a divine thing. Any Buddhist teacher will say, yeah, either you get angry or you love God. It's pretty much the same thing. Like any emotion is pretty much the same thing. There is no difference between loving God or hating some enemy. Because there is no God. This love is just an emotional need of yours. It's just a trip of your mind. And you have to go to the place where there is no vikalpa. And therefore you don't feel neither love, nor hate, nor nothing, basically. Equanimity, a sort of equal state where there is no ups and no downs. That's why I say that, of course, we see that uh, it's normal that Vivekananda sympathizes with Buddha... Because Vivekananda is a kind of Buddha himself. He is very much a rationalistic yogi, an intellectual yogi, a karma yogi. <coughs> he is not at all like Ramakrishna, 
or if you prefer like Yogananda or others, a devotional yogi with a lot of religious impulses and that. We see this in the modern civilization. In some countries where people are emotional and devotional, like many of the Mediterranean countries in Europe, like you know, Italy, Greece, Spain, Mediterranean, other nations, or in other countries which are more southern, like Mexico as compared to Canada in North America, people would go for devotional religious things. While, for example, North Americans in Canada, North in America itself, mostly in England, Germanic countries, Scandinavia, Buddhism is much more successful. Like if, you, if people have to choose between Ramakrishna and uh, the Dalai Lama, they will always choose the Dalai Lama. They prefer religious involvement, which is a bit distant, intellectual, <clears throat> rational, not where you do shed tears of devotion. And this, this is felt as awkward. So that's why this is actually even a trend of our days. There are very few countries where Anahata Chakra is strong and valued as such. And because of this, um, here the trend of Vivekananda is very powerful and it actually did catch a lot with the modern Western, especially the Anglo-Saxon type of civilization that is the ruling trend, the ruling paradigm today. And says Vivekananda in his opinion again, Buddhism is historically the most important religion historically, not philosophically, because it was the most tremendous religious movement that the world ever saw, the most gigantic spiritual wave ever to burst upon human society. So, see the importance which he gives to it. Again, I'm saying, other gurus have never said this, like Aurobindo never said this, that Buddha, according to him, was the greatest and the karma yogi and so on. Uh, Yogananda never said this. Uh, Ramana Maharishi never said this. Although they all admired Buddha and uh, acknowledged Buddha as an enlightened being, they wouldn't have given him superlative qualifications or epithets like Vivekananda did. Even his own guru, Ramakrishna, he would have never said that Buddha was the greatest. Actually, Ramakrishna did practice pretty much every religion he could lay hands on. Brahma Krishna, just to, for the heck of it, just to see if that's a path which leads to God. Because Ramakrishna simply said, I have reached Samadhi, and therefore if I practice any religion, it should take me to the same God, because there should be only one top of the mountain. And therefore, whichever way I climb this mountain, I have to find myself eventually on the top, the same top which I know. I want to verify that. And Ramakrishna was very beautiful from this standpoint because he practiced authentically, totally, every, besides Hinduism and Kali worship and yoga and other things which he practiced, yoga not being a religion, but a methodology, he practiced Christianity, he practiced Islam, he practiced lots of other things. And every time it took him three days to reach to Samadhi. Ramakrishna was so powerful spiritually that if you would start Christianity or Islam from scratch, like today he would get baptized. Today he would be a fresh convert. And then he would start doing it like mad. It would take him 72 hours. And in 72 hours he would reach ecstasy. 
he would reach a state of nirvana by practicing any path. And he was very happy every time when he practiced the path, and then he found himself in samadhi, and then he told to everybody very happily, your path is leading exactly where my path has been leading. I can now confirm it because I've been there, done that. He was an extraordinary experimentator. Well, Ramakrishna, who did experiment most of the spiritual path that, that he had heard about, he never said that Buddha was the greatest because he was a very anahata type of person. Guess who he said was his greatest vision? Jesus. Ramakrishna, the Hindu, the worshipper of Kali, actually said out of all the divine visions which he had and with whom he did Samyama and he reached this, the one which was the strongest for him was the one of Jesus. That's why, of course, please realize that even the enlightened beings, they have some preferences. They act by resonance. They have some dominant chakras. They have some inclinations which make them favor a path or another path. And that was valid for Vivekananda as well. So Vivekananda was very different from Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna, for example, thought that beginners and outsiders should not be taught Vedanta because in Vedanta you are preaching very extreme ideas such as I am Brahman, I am that. And Ramakrishna disagreed. He said ignorant people are going to make a mess out of such statements because they always will meditate from their ego and from their ignorance. And to say, I am God, when you are ignorant and when you are egocentric, is not a meditation. It's actually just a terrible delusion. And that's why Ramakrishna said only very advanced pupils, when the guru considers them fit for it, then they are fit to go into such sort of meditations. Vivekananda, his own disciple, 30 years later, 20 years later, he filled up his books with such things. He says, think all the time that you are Brahman. Think that you are God. Like Vivekananda was actually doing what his own guru said don't do. Because he was a different person, his understanding of yoga was his own. He had to speak from his own shoes. Like, you know, I cannot teach you the yoga of Ramakrishna. I can teach you the yoga of Vivekananda. Because Ramakrishna has spoken for himself. Vivekananda speaks for himself. Therefore, um, Vivekananda developed completely other trends in yoga, and some of them very, very beautiful. R Vivekananda is the first great yogi that rationalized yoga for the 20th century. It is incredible to see that today so many authors write books about yoga, and especially books in which they mention the chakras and the energy channels of the human being, and they keep on promoting the formidable delusion, which has a cause, but it's not to be taken literally, that man's most important channels of energy, the lunar channel and the solar channel, Ida Nadi and Pingala Nadi, are actually waving to the left and to the right 
like the serpents on the caduceus of Mercury from the hermetic tradition in the symbol of modern medicine. But Swami Vivekananda wrote it 120 years ago in his book Raja Yoga. That description is symbolic because when the energy moves, your body tends to do like this because it's like a war spiraling thing. But the channels are not spiral. The channels are like the meridians from acupuncture. They can give a feeling, but the channels themselves, they go straight. And it is Vivekananda who even draws them. And he says, Ida Nadi is six, seven centimeters to the left of your spine. In the back, you touch the spine, you go six, seven, that's three, four finger breadths lateral to your spine. That's where Ida Nadi is. And it goes from the nostril to the testicle for men. And it runs parallel to the spine. Not like this. 120 years have passed since a very rational guru has revealed exactly the trajectory of the nadis. And not any guru. The great, Ramakri the great Vivekananda, who had been instructed personally by Ramakrishna, and the great connoisseur of yoga. 120 years later, people still write bollocks that Ida and Pingala are uh, waving and they are meeting in some points, whereas they are crisscrossing like this, they are meeting. That's total bullshit. So, of course, we need Vivekanandas in yoga because when one like Vivekananda is born, he simply makes the things. Ramakrishna never wrote anything. Ramakrishna, if you would listen to Ramakrishna, you wouldn't know where Ida Nadi and Pingala Nadi are. There was necessary that Ramakrishna had a very precise disciple, and that disciple made order in the chaos, because Ramakrishna never bothered to deal with such trivial matters, as where is Ida Nadi, or where is Pingala Nadi, and why so many authors mix it up and talk nonsense about this otherwise important subject. So, this being said, I hope I made you understand a little bit of some patterns there. And continuing with our analysis of the fundamental truths, we would say that Buddha was an early Vivekananda, and Vivekananda in the 19th century was a 19th century Buddha. Like these two resembled a lot in the meaning that they were rational, precise, and they made things, they liked to create systems and to be accurate on things. Buddhists are not agreeing perfectly exactly when the birthday of the Buddha has been. It's celebrated every year, and we are going to celebrate it in approximately two months from now, on the full moon, which comes at that time. And if you are going to study the astrological sign in which it falls by Western astrology, that means the one which doesn't change, it, you are going to find out that the birthday of Buddha is 95% of the time falling in the Taurus. So Buddha could be, according to his traditional birth date, as Jesus' birthday usually is in Capricorn, Buddha's birthday would be Taurus, or maybe a small percentage possibility, Arius. All the signs of Buddha's life 
are more towards Taurus, like Buddha did not act like an Arius, definitely. He acted like a Taurus. There is an example of a modern guru who had some characteristics similar to Buddha, and he actually was a Taurus. And he lived 93 years. He's the one who lived longest of all the 20th century gurus in spirituality and oriental mysticism. That's the famous, notorious for some people, Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti, just like Buddha, was a rationalist almost. People almost wonder sometimes if Krishnamurti, while being a spiritual teacher, was actually not some atheist or materialist, because he kept on preaching that there is no path, there is no teacher, there is no method, and he lived in a very Buddha-like way, you can see some trends. There is something common between Vivekananda, Krishnamurti, Buddha himself. One of the typical things which you can see between all three of them is all three are astrologically earth signs. They are earth typologies, like very precise, very down to earth very, you know, liking systems and order and things like that. So I will not insist, but fact is that Buddha did a great thing. Buddha did a great thing by bringing order in spirituality. One of the typical things for Buddha, which I'm going to comment a little bit of it today and then in the next days, is this, that Buddha presented the spiritual truth in a very orderly way. Like when Buddha wanted to say all my teaching can be reduced to four basic truths, which are called today the four noble truths. Like you want to know something about what Buddhism is, start from the four noble. There are four very simple truths. The first truth of Buddha, of Buddha's four noble truths, is the existence of pain. Like, look around. Does there exist suffering? Every realistic person would say life is 50-50. Sometimes you have an orgasm. Sometimes you have good food. Sometimes you are being praised and your ego is tickled. Sometimes you see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful masterpiece of art and you get joy. And then sometimes, inevitably, you are going to get pain. And joy and pain are about 50-50. Exactly like the Lao Tzu says, he says there is no valley without hill, there is no hill without valley. Every valley is followed by a hill, every hill is followed by a valley. There is no hill that can go on forever, it's not logical, and there is no valley which can descend forever. Thus, there will always be yin and yang, there will always be day and night. There will always be hunger and fullness. There will always be cold and warm. Each one is followed by its opposite. If today you had some fun, tomorrow you can be prepared to be sad and depressed. If it's not tomorrow, and tomorrow you still have fun, then you have to be prepared to have two days of sadness and depression at some other time. If a pendulum swings to the right, it compulsorily will swing to the left as well. And that's why all these teachers, they tell us all this human chase for pleasure 
is completely schizophrenic and unnatural because you will never be able to fulfill it. This is unfortunately the philosophy of modern people, to live, to have fun. Only 50% of your life can be fun, and the other 50% has to be dental pain, fractured bones, insomnia, childbirth, relationships broken, everything. It cannot go on forever. It's 50-50 always. The point is, can you reach happiness when it's 50-50? Because happiness does not mean to have constant pleasure. Constant pleasure is ultimately a brain addiction. The pleasure in your brain is produced by dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, a few other things, oxytocin and so on, which produce pleasurable reactions of different kinds. But that's a drug. If you want to live 70 years drugged into constant pleasure, that's it. But Lao Tzu and Buddha and others like them, they say you are not going to learn anything. And happiness has never been defined as constant pleasure. Like people who were happy, blissful people, they did have pain in the daily life. Either physical pain or sometimes emotional pain or things. There exists this incredible superstition that spirituality means that everything is going to go smooth and is going to be pink and rosy. You guys should go and visit the Disneyland, not come to a guru. Because you live in a dream. You are living in a dream in which the gurus, yogas, Buddhism, Christianity, or whatever it is, is supposed to create a sort of an eternal paradise, which eternal paradise means there will be no pain. There will be only constant pleasure. There isn't such a thing. Not in samsara. In the world of manifestation, as soon as you put two kilos on the right plate, you have to put two kilos on the left plate as well. There will always be balance. Every action generates a reaction. If you generate more positive ions, you have to generate more negative ions to compensate. If you eat acid food, your body has to come up with something alkaline to compensate for the acidity that you generated. Thus, it is a very childish, primitive, this is kindergarten, that you want to search for spirituality because spirituality is going to be pleasant all day long. It isn't. This is a, an illusion, and that's why we have many people who after a short time, they go away from yoga. Although they discover that yoga is wonderful, although they discover that yoga can do amazing things, and definitely it can improve the quality of your life in so many ways, they expected some miraculous pill which will completely destroy any form of pain forever. There doesn't exist such a thing. That's not what spirituality has been made for. Neither Jesus nor Jesus, for example, says, come follow me. He says, come take my yoke. Yoke, like an, like an ox, like a cow that pulls a cart. He says, come tell my, take my yoke, which he says, I'm going to give you tapas. I'm going to give you self-discipline. You will have to refrain, do moral and ethical. There will be hours of prayer. I'm not going to give you something which is fun. But he says, my yoke is much lighter than the yoke of the world, which promises much and gives so little. 
like he says, still, spirituality is the path to choose, even when you look at the pleasure angle, because those people who are deluded, they live in a much bigger amount of suffering, as Buddha shows lower in his following truths. But at this point, the, in the Four Noble Truths, Buddha says, first of all, look around yourselves, because there is the reality of pain. Somebody would say, isn't Buddha a pessimist? It's like a glass is half empty or half full. And Buddha looks at the empty half. Why doesn't Buddha say, well, life is having tribulations and challenges, and from time to time you are going to have some real fun. Like there is a sunset which makes it worth it to go through a shitty day. There is a blowjob and a chocolate cake which makes it worth it that you have had a toothache or I don't know what at some other time. There will always be some fun and so on. Why not look at the bright side of life? Don't forget that Buddha is not a tantric yogi. His method is ultimately an ascetic method where you eat little, you sleep little, you don't smile, you don't laugh, you don't indulge into sexual pleasures, you don't do this, you don't do that. And it's a method which is pretty repressive and severe. That's why Buddha leads to his spirituality, both by the fact that, hey, don't you want to know the truth? Like, do you have longing for the truth, aspiration for the truth? But he uses the whip. Buddha himself reached to the search out of fear, out of horror. I have kept here somewhere the statement himself, the famous three warnings, which are the words of Buddha himself in the Dhammapada. He says, didn't you ever see in the world a man or a woman, 80, 90, or 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches, with tottering steps, infirm, youth long since fled, with broken teeth, gray and scanty hair, or bald-headed, wrinkled with blotched limbs, and did the thought never come to you that you are also subject to decay, that you can also, cannot also escape it? Did you never see in the world a man or a woman who being sick, afflicted, and grievously ill, and wallowing in his or her own filth, was lifted up by some people and put to bed by others? And did the thought never come to you that you, you also are subject to disease, that you also cannot escape it? Didn't you ever see in the world a corpse of a man or of a woman, one or two or three days after death, swollen up, blue-black in color and decomposing? And did the thought never come to you that you are also subject to death, that you also cannot escape it? Like Buddha is using the fear of the human being as a motivator. For Buddha, fear is not bad. Exactly as in Christianity, the person of virtue is called the God-fearing man. How can fear be a virtue? Yes, because if you are afraid of God, you are going to be moral and ethical, and you are not going to lie, cheat, or whatever you do, kill, if indeed you are. It's paradoxical. So Buddha himself starts in a very repressive way. He simply says, I have seen dead people, I have seen sick people, I have seen old people, and then I realized. That's exactly what it is. There is suffering in this world. 
Don't try to look around, look away, and think there is no suffering. There is suffering, and you are going to have your fair share of it. And therefore, the point is not absurdly trying to avoid suffering. Yes, there is also pleasure, but you are trying to anesthetize yourself with that pleasure, like avoiding the thought of the pain by masking it with the thought of the pleasure. The truth is that there is not more pleasure than pain. It's 50-50. It's exactly as much yin as as much yang. There is as much valley as as much hill. The final account always comes down to zero. There are as many protons as electrons in this universe. And you always get to zero when you sum up everything. That's why there is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Ah, that for a hundred years you can, you can experience pleasure, that's true. But that's not enough, that's not the final, the final answer. And please remember, remember, remember that both Buddha himself and everybody never defines happiness as pleasure. On the contrary, many, many yogis, especially from the ascetic traditions, they make it very clearly that as long as the human being is dependent on the pleasure of the five senses, like if for you pleasure means a smell, a taste, a touch, a sight, a sound, then you are, that's not happiness. That's just a temporary tickling of the sensory organs, which has yin and yang, and that kind of thing is not eternal and it's not the answer. It's not happiness. When we try to see what happiness did Rumi have or what happiness did Milarepa have, that happiness is not a sensory happiness. It's not a tingling in the body or some sensation. It's something which comes from the soul and therefore something of a totally different thing. Like when you did a very great thing and you are smashed and crushed and you are wiped out and you are hungry, and you are having pain in your limbs, and people say, wow, you did it. Do you suffer? And you say, no, it doesn't matter. I'm so happy. How can you be happy when you are tired, crushed with pain in the body? And this, Because you've done something very great, something has been accomplished, and although you are having many unpleasant sensations, which normally would piss you off, and normally all those bad sensations, they would be a turn-off, like nobody wants to feel like that. But in parallel, in your heart, there exists a feeling of accomplishment, like I've done it, the right thing has been done. And then you feel happy, although your body feels miserable, and in your five senses, you're not feeling very satisfied. But there is another sense which is not the five senses. There is a sort of an inner sense, a sense of the soul. That's where the happiness is. So happiness is something else. But still, like Buddha can say, there is existence of sorrow. Now, in Thailand, there is a very powerful tradition where the protector of the Thai medicine and of the Thai massage is uh, whatever his name is. I forgot, I always forget it because it's a Hindu name twisted in Thai pronunciation. And that guy is supposed to be the doctor of Buddha, the medic of Buddha. 
and there are medical texts which show how that tradition came to be that Buddha at some point was suffering from constipation. Probably eating so much rice and not doing with the Anabanda and Nauli Kriya, he probably would get constipated. And the doctor Sularaksha or whatever his name was gave him some ricin oil or something, some purgative, and basically Buddha's bowels became loose and he crapped. And this was a great medical victory because even Buddha needed a doctor. So Buddha was not feeling every day okay. He sometimes was constipated and therefore even the very nirvanic Buddha needing some purgatives to loosen his bowels. It's a wrong interpretation to think that Buddha was having physical comfort all day long. That's not what happiness is supposed to mean. Not emotional comfort, not physical comfort, not intellectual comfort. It's something beyond the five senses in a realm which is the realm of the soul. And I'm sure that some of you have experienced this state that sometimes it was hard and yet you felt really happy. And in spite of hardships and people barking at you and being really nasty to you, you said, this is the happiest day of my life. Like, I really feel... You know, how, where does that come from? Because it's not from the regular five senses. So Buddha, he is on purpose looking at the empty side of the glass and says, stop deluding yourself with sunsets and oranges. Those are very nice, but there is also pain. And as you are going to get old, your teeth are going to rot and fall off your mouth and your dick is not going to get up anymore, and a lot of frustrating things are going to happen, and that's going to be suffering. You're not going to be happy about it. On a certain level of your being, there is suffering. Accept it. Look into it. Don't try to numb yourself to this. And the second of the noble truths was that Buddha analyzing, okay, I look into the eyes of the enemy, and if it's an enemy at all, but it's unpleasant, definitely. And I'm looking in the eyes of it, and I'm trying to find out where does it come from. What's the cause of sorrow? What's the cause of pain? Here, Buddha was magnificent, because he demonstrated that he could reduce things to the essence completely, because he reduced the cause of suffering to just one word. That's fundamental in the Buddha, Buddhist thought. The cause of sorrow, according to Buddha, and Abhinavagupta would fully agree with him, and so would so many others, the cause of sorrow, according to Buddha, is ignorance. Buddha got to that in a totally yogic way. Like the yogis of Tibet, much later in history, because they followed in the footsteps of Buddha, they described the poisons as five poisons belonging to the five elements, to the first five chakras. There are five es essential evils which are happening in the human being. One for the earth, one for the water, one for the fire or the Manipura chakra, one for the air, the heart chakra, and one for the ether or the fifth element in Vishuddha chakra. And they defined those poisons. The same thing was done about at the time of Buddha independently 
by the great Patanjali, the author of the Yoga Sutra, who described the same, the five kleshas, the five impurities of the mind, according to the five elements, according to the chakras. Actually, Patanjali doesn't say it's according to the chakras, because the chakras do not exist in the Yoga Sutra, so he couldn't compare it with the chakras. This is what I do in the 21st century by teaching you these things according to Tantric Yoga, giving you the chakra correspondences and the energy so that you understand how it goes in your practice. Now comes the point. There are therefore five poisons. How did Buddha get to one? Because actually the five elements are all coming originally from just one element. In metaphysics, in alchemy, the five elements are presented like being on a cross, like being the four corners of a cross, and the fifth element stands in the middle of the cross, exactly like in the Luc Besson movie, the fifth element. The consultants for that movie were people who knew about the hermetic tradition and things like that. So, actually, you don't need to look at all the five impurities because ultimately the five impurities, they all come from the fifth. The fifth of them stands in the middle and irradiates the other four. And that's why if you really want to go to the synthesis of the synthesis, then the last one is the one which matters because that's the root klesha, the root impurity. The root impurity is therefore the poison of Vishuddha chakra and of the fifth element of the Akasha Tattva, and that the Tibetan yogis, they call that stupidity, but it's a bit of an impolite word, it's rough, Tibetans were known to be rough, because in a more polite academic language, it would mean ignorance. Of course, you can say that a stupid person is ignorant. No, it's, there exists the English and American expression, where when you want to call somebody stupid in a more delicate way, you say, oh, you ignoramus. You know, it's the Latinized word. It's the way a professor in a university would simply say, you are dumb. No. Instead of saying you are dumb, they say, oh, what an ignoramus you are. And that is supposed to alleviate your ego pain of having been called stupid. And um, therefore... Ignorance is the blockage of Vishuddha chakra, which is a very rare and a very delicate chakra on the face of this earth. It's the place where the human being is the most narrow in all the body. We are nowhere so bottlenecked as here. Like this part, this floor of our body is the least manifested. So, unfortunately, it seems that human beings are a race who by DNA, by natural resonance, have some tendency to not manifest very much Vishuddha. Because of this, in religion, in spirituality, there often exists fanaticism, narrow-mindedness, violence, but very seldom does there exist purity and intuition, truly. Vishuddha is a rare is a rare bird and it has been tried to be cultivated and human beings don't understand it it is the thing against which people rebel revolt easiest if anybody is a sort of a purist 
it's the thing on which people give least of a damn of. You know, it's like people, when somebody says, you should try to be pure. Yeah, everything goes. Who cares? This is my, what my grandma believed in. Like, the more modern we go, the more free thinkers we become, one, the first thing which we sacrifice is purity and puritanism. Like, who cares about it? Hello, Buddha did care very much. So did Jesus. So did Ramakrishna. So did a hundred thousand others. They cared tremendously about if there is purity. And they didn't think that, ah, no, everything goes. No, for Jesus, definitely. If you'd go to Jesus and say, come on, man, cool down. You know, it's like, we are in the 21st century. We are at a time where everything goes. Like, stop criticizing the Pharisees and the scribes and the homosexuals and whatever. You know, it's like, chill out. You know, we are living in a democratic 21st century tolerant society. And everything goes. Any one of you imagines that you would ever get Jesus to put a big false smile on his face and be polite and politically correct and say, yeah, you're right, come on, 21st century. Such a firebrand man would never go there. If he was a Puritan, he would be a Puritan to the bone always. So those of you who don't like purity, you should pray that you never see the second coming of Christ. Most Christians pray that Christ should come again. If you don't like purity to the bone, pray that it won't happen in your lifetime because you will have to incur some sulfur and brimstone if that's happening. So what I'm trying to say here is Buddha values this thing of Vishuddha Chakra most. He says the root of all the five elements is Akasha. And Akasha, when Akasha Tattva is poorly represented in your body, and mind, this creates ignorance. Or if you want to be nasty, stupidity. Stupidity or ignorance means that you don't see what is truly important. I remember once having seen an interview with a metaphysician of the 20th century, and a journalist, a journalist was asking me, what is the greatest value you think for a human being? And this guy was a rationalist like Vivekananda and like Buddha. And he simply said, intelligence. And the journalist was really upset because he says, what do you mean intelligence? It's intelligent people who invented the atomic bomb and things like this. And he said, no. The people who invented the atomic bomb, they just had the technical intelligence, but they were ultimately stupid. Because if they would have really been intelligent, they would have known where they are going and what is happening. And he used a quote, which I picked up and put in your yoga courses in the first month, by Plotin, for one, or one of the Neoplatonic philosophers, who said that the real intelligence, not the speculative university intelligence, which makes people become diabolically intelligent and destructive. The real intelligence, says Plotinus, is the one which turns the human being from ephemeral and transient things and makes them focus on what is eternal. Like if you'd be really, 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 really intelligent, then you would see that it's completely useless to invest too much attention in your physical body, given the fact that a hundred years from now it's going to push the daisies 
and for some of you much earlier than 100 years from now. If you would be really, 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 really intelligent, you would see that it's completely useless to do a lot of things such as take revenge, gossip, backbiting and backstabbing and all sorts of other things when the laws of karma make everything turn back to you just as you released it. If you would be intelligent, you'd listen to Buddha, you'd listen to Milarepa, you'd listen to Ramakrishna because you'd immediately see that this person has a point, this person has seen through the whole game. This person has really found the truth. That's why the idea remains. Buddha, in a very gentle metaphysical way, says, unfortunately most human beings are of limited intelligence because if they would be really, really, really intelligent, they will understand what life is about. They would look really carefully for a year or two. They would look at what life is made of, where is everybody going, what's happening, and then they would draw some intelligent conclusions. The intelligent conclusion being to be detached, to be spiritual, to be compassionate, to do, to produce good karma, to consecrate, and all those things. So Buddha simply says the cause of all the suffering is the last impurity, which makes appear the other four, the collaterals of it, but the root, the root of this weed is ignorance or stupidity, which simply says that the cure to it is knowledge. That's why in India, the word jnana, which means the real knowledge, not partial knowledge, how many scientists today have become atheistic? Buddha, as well as Swami Vivekananda, would say those people are wiseacre. They are half knowledgeable. They are egocentric people who think they are intelligent. And maybe their IQ is high, but that's not the real intelligence. There is more to the real intelligence. The real intelligence has to come with a very important ingredient to it, which makes it real intelligence. It has to come with common sense. One of the teachers of one of my teachers when I was young, Andre van Lisbeth, a great yogi who lived in Belgium, in his books and in his magazines, he always gave a beautiful answer. He had studied with many, many teachers throughout India. He was very liberal and very open-minded. And his yoga teaching was one of the best I've seen in the last 50 years in the Western world. He had passed away about 10 years ago. And Andre van Lisbeth, who didn't have any Swami name or something, he was a modest yoga teacher living in the West European style. When he was asked, he said, many people seek and see that my knowledge of yoga is pretty good. And they are asking me immediately, who was your guru? And he says, it is always my pleasure to tell you that my guru is Swami Common Sense Ananda. Because in spirituality, in French, he said it, speak, being Belgian, he was a French language Belgian, and he said Swami Bon Sense Ananda in French, for those of you who translated from French. No? Like, it is very important that intelligence should be connected with common sense. If a common sense person has 
in, if an intelligent person has common sense, that intelligence becomes a wise type of intelligence. An intelligence which is separated from common sense, it becomes an alienated schizophrenic type of intelligence which invents weapons of mass destruction and all sorts of other schizophrenic things out of which people generate more pain, more alienation, more torture, more destruction to mother nature, more suffering on all the levels of the being. And that's why Buddha is ultimately right. In India, they put it in the positive way and they said you have to be a Gyanin, you have to have Jnana. That means you have to really know. Like Sundar Singh, his mother died and then he realized that he didn't know if his mother, who believed in Jesus while his father was a Sikh, if his mother was right or his father was right. And he realized that his mother didn't know for sure. And he realized that his father didn't know for sure. And then he realized that most people never know. They are not Gyanins. That people just endorse each other's faith systems. And they believe in what their neighbor believes. And they feel very offended and irritated when somebody believes in another god or in some other moral values or social values than they do. That's the ultimate irritation. People kill each other for this religious belief thing. Why can't people sit quietly because somebody else believes in God in another way than they do or doesn't believe at all? Like, why can't you just live your life and be? That shows how much of a provocation that is for the mind. And thus, remember, therefore, that this uh, aspect is very important. You have to be a jnani. Like you have to know what you are talking about. You have to have been there and done that. It is, theoretically, it should not be okay that a Christian priest should talk about God and have never seen or felt God. That's just a parrot taking, telling you a lesson learned by heart. But it's not a Gyanin. That person is not a Gyani. It's not a person who knows through experience. That's why Buddha simply says the origin of all suffering is the fact that people don't know. People don't have the experience. Everybody is pretty much an ignorant and this ignorance has to be eliminated. That's why yoga and spirituality fit so well. Because they are giving you the experience. You do the headstand until you experience. You do pranayama until you experience. You do laya yoga until you experience. And then you know what you are talking about. Otherwise, it's just a story. That's why... The second thing is very important because Buddha simply says, ultimately, people are not evolved enough. Because if they would be evolved enough, they could always say, been there, seen that. Been there, done that. And then people will not, would not be ignorant. And if they would not be ignorant, they would not have any pain. 
everybody in this room or almost everybody in this room would experience pain in front, for example, of death, the imminence of your own death experienced as fear or the death of somebody near and dear to you, one of your parents, one of your siblings. Everybody would experience pain. But it is interesting that most spiritualities tell us that when we die, we go closer to God and we are going into a state of existence which is more free and more blissful than the physical state of existence. So actually to die is a liberation, it's a knowledge, it's an awakening, and to die is therefore a reward, not a punishment. People say, yeah, but what if you died in a horrible way? What does it matter? You die, you die. Drowned in the ocean or blown into an explosion, still you are gone into the astral world and your existence there in the astral world is of a totally different degree. That's why Buddha says, if you would have visited the world of the dead, if you would have been there in astral projection, if you would have been in all the paradises and the hells and the intermediary worlds of this universe, then when somebody would die, even somebody close to you, you'd know exactly what the whole thing is about. Like Drukpa Kunle, the divine madman, the biggest yogi of Bhutan, who lived in Tibet, but also had connections still with Bhutan, Drukpa Kunle suggested to a king and a queen that had a child that was malformed. It was a child with some genetical disorder, therefore handicapped. And that was the only child of that royal couple. And that child was therefore bound to become king, but he would have been a terrible king due to his handicap and Drukpa Kunle had the balls to look into the eyes of the king and the queen and simply tell them give me this child and I'll take it to the river and drown it with my own hand then I'll give you a blessing and you are going to have a healthy child that is going to be a blessing for this country either he was mad or he knew something about life and death like he knew This child is not going to be happy in this body. I'm going to take responsibility in front of the gods. I'm going to end its life. If there is any negative karma coming from this, let it be mine. I'll take that negative karma. This child will be freed by its body without having committed suicide or something. This child will be freed by its body. It will go in the astral world for 300 years, take a break, take a deep breath, be happy that he escaped from a handicapped body, and then he will come back without this karma anymore, blessed by me, Drukpa Kunle, and he will have a normal life in some other circumstances hundreds of years later. Meanwhile, a worthy soul is going to be brought to the planet Earth in a healthy body. That soul will be a blessed soul because I can visualize it and I can make it happen. Therefore, the king and the queen are going to have a very wise son who will be a very benign king. And the whole nation nation will prosper and give praise to the gods that they were so lucky as to have a great king and to have such a blessing. And I'm going to give to this country another 50 years of stability and happiness. 
who can think like this? That's not an ignorant person. Drukpa Kunle does not suffer and he doesn't want anybody to suffer because he knows. He knows so much that for the normal ignorant person, it's like, get behind me, Satan. You know, it's like, you can't say such a thing. He's scary. Normal people who are afflicted with stupidity or ignorance are sometimes scared by the people who really know. Like the ignorant people, it's one of the characteristics of ignorance and stupidity. They don't want to know. In nine out of ten Hollywood movies, where you have people who could know the future, in some movies, by clairvoyance, by some divination, people always say, no, no, I don't want to know the future. One should not know the future. Why not? I, for one, I would like to know every brim of the future. If I could have a television device who could show me the future in detail, I would like to see every bit of it, including the Super Bowl numbers from the next lottery, so I can buy an island in Greece and make a butt-naked tantric republic there. You know, it's like, why wouldn't I want to know the future? Of course I would want to know the future, all of it. Uh, would you like to know when you are going to die? Sure, because if I die of a heart attack tomorrow... All the advanced pupils in Agama are going to be in a mess because I did not prepare things for my death yet. So if I would know exactly the day of my death, I would at least be able to take one week before to prepare who's going to take over the whole thing and continue and how and how qualified they are, you know, like not leave a mess behind me. So why would it be bad for me to know when death would be? A year ago, they already made possible the telomere analysis and uh, all the insurance companies are in arms because they would like to give you a blood test on your telomeres because it can take with great precision how many years you still have got to live. And the insurance companies are tricky. They wouldn't give you an insurance if you have little to live. And guess what? It has been hushed down immediately. They promised. Telomere blood analysis will be available in maximum six months. It's when underground. You don't hear about it because people don't want to know. There exists a method which can tell you with quite big accuracy your life expectation from today on. It's called telomere. No? Why don't you go and pay for it? Get to some hospital and do it because it's already scientifically made possible. Nothing. Because people have an organic fear, an animal fear from knowing the truth. That's why Jesus says, know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But the truth is something horrifying, scaring. The truth is destroying all your hopes and expectations. The truth is destroying all the foolishness. The truth is destroying all the games of the mental monkey. And that's why people don't really want to know the truth. People want to live in their Svadhisthana, in a sweet, sugar-coated illusion. People always want to forget and want drugs, even if those drugs mean cinema movies or just some nice story or something, anything which makes you forget about these two fundamental truths, that there is suffering and it's inevitable, and the cause of suffering is ignorance, it's the fact that 
very few people dare to look the truth right in the eyes. What, what, as ever painful or scary it would be, look into it. And the third of the noble truths, I don't know if I'm going to finish them tonight, but it, I've, I wanted to go at least first through these. The third noble truth of Buddha is there is pain, inevitably. Look around. Don't, don't lie to yourself. The cause of this sorrow is ignorance, stupidity, if you want to be rough. And the third noble truth is that it is possible to bring suffering to an end. Of course, by bringing the involvement into the yin and yangs of life, like if you don't want to descend into a valley, then don't climb on a hill. Stay horizontal. As long as you stay horizontal, there's going to be no hill, but there is going to be no valley. There is a way of avoiding sorrow if you avoid too much joy. Like don't give yourself ups and life won't give you downs. It's as simple as that. Equanimity. Find the real happiness beyond the fact that you feel joyful or sorrowful. Because happiness has nothing to do with joy or sorrow. Those are at a much more superficial layer in your koshas. That's why the third noble truth is cessation of pain, of sorrow, is possible. You can make the pain stop. You can get out of this game if you don't like the way this game is being played. And the fourth noble truth is, of course, about the nature or the way which leads to the cessation of sorrow. Like, it would be very teasing if I would tell you there is sorrow, the cause of sorrow is ignorance, there is a way to get out of sorrow. And logically, then I would like to know what that way is, please, because 999 people of 1,000, they don't give a rat's ass, like Buddha is talking, and they say, yeah, 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 very interesting, yeah. No, but actually they don't give a shit, because they will continue their lives as if nothing has happened, as if they never heard anything. And one person out of a thousand, which most of them are in this yoga hall tonight, they would pay attention, and they would say, actually, I hear the message, there is a truth in this, and... I would like to do something about it. And then I definitely must hear about the method. So there exists a method. It's not an abstract thing. There exists a method. It's true. Buddha discovered his own angle to that method. There are many people in this world who reached ecstasy and they reached what they called eternity, cosmic consciousness, eternal life or whatever you want to call it. And they did not practice one brim of Buddha's method. Like they are Christian saints who reached states of ecstasy by praying, by prayer to Jesus. That's not what Buddha teaches when people do vipassana or whatever they do in the name of Buddha as a continuation of Buddha's method. When the Zen Buddhists of Japan, they do Zazen, the sitting Zen meditation. 
has nothing to do with the prayer methods of some or with the whirling dance of the Sufi dervishes or other methods. That means this planet, fortunately, is not limited only to Buddha's methods. Buddha was very good in settling the four basic truths where all the whole thing starts. But of course, when it came to a method, Buddha could only say, well, as far as I know, I, Gautama Buddha, have seen the reality of pain, have looked for a way out of pain, and I practiced this sitting under that body tree in Bodh Gaya, and then one day I hit jackpot and I reached. And I can teach you what I did to stop pain, to stop sorrow. Buddha never really had the cheek to say, nobody else knows it on the face of this earth, nobody else knew it before me or shall know it besides me, Nobody else will discover any other method than I did because mine is the one and only and that's the only way. Buddha had a lot of decency in this way because in religion you often hear these extreme statements only my method, only our path, only our God, only this. It's nonsense because the cosmic consciousness has manifested in all the centuries and on all the meridians of latitude and longitude and it has crystallized for people, and thus in various religions, in various cultures, in various centuries, people did have insights, and there have been breakthroughs, and that's why there is not just one method. There do exist several methods. Here in Agama, we believe that a yoga method, a tantric yoga method, is very good, and although it's not the only one, but many of our pupils, they would say, well, if I would be asked to do exclusively Vipassana, or if I would be asked to do exclusively the Christian prayer of the heart, or if I would be asked to do exclusively the Sufi practice of zikr or of whirling or something, or if I would be asked to have the possibility to do the full thing of yoga, I would probably choose the full thing of yoga. Because the full thing of yoga contains hundreds of methods, it's diversified, it's adapted to all the possible temperaments and typologies of the human being, it has methods which are physical, methods which are emotional, methods which are mental, methods which are energetical, so it's very well represented on all the levels. It is very clear and technical-like with chakras, energies, resonance and all that. And because of it, of course, many people who are in yoga, they think that yoga is a very good method because it was esoteric, kept secret for centuries, only for limited numbers of people. It was never a mass method for millions and millions and billions of people. And that's why, of course, I'm not saying that it's forbidden to think that you are on a path which is good or the best for you. But the key word here is the last word. For everybody, there is a best path for them. I cannot guarantee that Agama Yoga is the best path for everybody. I like to believe that. It's, that's part of my own uh, fantasy, that yoga somehow could adapt to everybody on this world because it is so diversified and it addresses all the typologies and all these. The truth is that 
again, there is a way out of suffering. Buddha discovered the way out of suffering. Jesus exposed or set forth a way out of suffering. Krishna set forth a way out of suffering. Others and others presented their own way out of pain and suffering. <coughs> and yoga is also a way out of this existential suffering. A very specific, peculiar way, which is not the way of Buddha. We do respect fully the fact that Buddha found a way. And even the Buddhists did not stop at the one way of the Buddha. Even the Buddhist sects or branches, they cannot agree what really was Buddha doing under that Bodhi tree. You know that most of you believe that Buddha was sitting in that meditation posture and then when he finally had the thing, he put his hand down and touched the earth and that was it, right? That special mudra where Buddha touched the earth was the moment when he reached his enlightenment and so on. But actually there are Buddhist sects who think that he was doing pratanasana that he was sitting in that particular position, standing, in a standing position. He was doing a meditation standing in a special posture of the body, which we teach here in Agama in some more advanced level. No? And so even the Buddhists don't know exactly what Buddha was doing when he was spending his years under that body tree. Definitely, that's not the only method invented on the face of this earth. And that's why you have always to look like what Buddha says is, at least I discovered one method. And the Buddhist schools invented other and other methods. For example, Zazen. Zazen, which is the method of Chan from China, it was apparently taken to China by Bodhidharma, who did the extreme act of plucking out his own eyelids because he wanted to stop falling asleep in meditation. And he chose a totally Chinese way of doing that. He simply cut off his eyelids. Like if you don't have eyelids, you can't close your eyes anymore. I don't know how many of you, for the sake of God, would be ready to cut off your own eyelids. Even if I would offer it with surgery in a hospital with anesthesia. Like I would guarantee you won't feel much pain because we give you morphine and so on. But not to have eyelids for the rest of your life because you want to find nirvana. That's a pretty steep price to pay, to pay, some people would think. Bodhidharma did it. And then he invented the Zen meditation, which are starting by meditating with the eyes open. That meditation is invented in the 7th century or so. It's not coming from Buddha. Therefore, there are many Buddhists today, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, with all the deity yoga, with all the people who meditate with Vajra and Yamantaka and all those, None of them ever existed at the time of Buddha. Tantric deity meditations with tankas and mandalas and mantras and this, these are invented in the 8th century by Padmasambhava and the subsequent yogis of Tibet. Therefore, even in Buddhism, people are practicing methods which, strictly speaking, are not invented by Buddha, like in Christianity. In Christianity, the modern Orthodox, the last five centuries of the Orthodox Church is focused mostly on the famous prayer of the heart. But the prayer of the heart did not exist until the 6th, 7th century. And it was totally brought to foundational levels only in the 15th century. 
So it's a method which is invented. And then people in that religion, they believe that the person who invented it was blessed telepathically or by the Holy Spirit, by the founder of the religion, so that the method is somehow still kosher. It's aligned with the... It did not deviate from the basic principle of that spirituality. But methods are constantly invented and added to suit the modern man. People from Japan want to meditate in some way. People from India want to meditate in another way because their temperament can be extremely different. That's why um, I'm saying this, that this you have to take it with a pinch of salt because even though Buddha says there is a method, he doesn't mean there is one method. He says there are methods for putting an end to suffering. And that is very important to remember. That will be enough for tonight. In this way, I try to express in the language of yoga some of the things from Buddhism. I will continue. I have a few other interesting... Uh, it's important to hear some of the words of Buddha, like what Buddha apparently directly, literally said. So I'll continue with this for a couple of satsangs to uh, bring all these Buddhist teachings to this uh, explanation through yoga. For now, for tonight, let us stop here. With this we have finished the satsang. Thank you all for joining. Namaste. And I will see you at the next satsangs next week, first of all. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.